Programming on Utah Public Radio is brought to you in part by our members and Rocky Mountain Power, supporting education, innovation, and clean transportation solutions for Utah. Details at rockymountainpower.net slash ev. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Every year for Earth Day, we talk about the Earth with writer and photographer Stephen Trimble. This time, we'll also be talking with retired Westminster professor David Stanley and former National Park Service naturalist and planner Greer Cheshire. All three are editors of books in the ongoing National Park Reader Series published by University of Utah Press. We're going to explore the literature surrounding the national parks, talk about overcrowding, crumbling infrastructure, national park policy, and much more. And so we welcome in from uh, KCPW Studios in Salt Lake City, our thanks to the good folks there, David Stanley, uh, who's now retired and serving as professor of English at Westminster College in Salt Lake City. Uh, he taught American literature and folklore, chaired the Environmental Studies Program. In the 1960s, he worked on trail maintenance crews in Glacier National Park for six summers. He and his wife, Nan, continue to visit and hike in Glacier on a regular basis. David Stanley, welcome to the program. Thank you. Glad to be here. Appreciate you joining us. Uh, Stephen Trimble is also at KCBW Studios. He began his writing and photography career as a park ranger, including a season at Capitol Reef National Park in 1975. Uh, Capitol Reef Reader is his 25th book in the series. Uh, his 25th book, it's in the series. Uh, the joyful combination of uh, 45 years of hiking and photographing in that park. He has a home outside of Torrey where he and his family are proud stewards of a Nature Conservancy conservation easement, a story he tells in Bargaining for Eden, the Fight for the Last Open Spaces in America, uh, one of his most popular books. Stephen Trimble, welcome back to the program. Hi, Tom. I'm delighted to be here. And on the telephone, we have uh, Greer Cheshire, who's been a naturalist uh, since a night almost 40 years ago when her father woke her from a deep uh, slumber, uh, summer slumbers to watch her first meteor shower. Now, after retiring from a 34-year career as a National Park Service naturalist and planner in five southwestern parks, she wanders the desert still trying to sate an unquenchable curiosity about the natural world. Knowing she'll never find all the answers, but enjoying the Red Rock uh, journey, she and her four-legged family live and write from beautiful downtown Rockville, Utah, a town of 200 hardy souls and 5 million yearly passers-by. Guru Cheshire, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's a joy to be here. Uh, it's great to have all three of you uh, on. Uh, let me start with David Stanley. Um, tell me how this started. National Park Reader Series. You're the co-editor of the overall series. Yeah, that's right. Uh, back in 2010, uh, Glacier National Park was celebrating its centennial, and I thought it might be a good idea to put together some of the writings that my trail crew friends had done, and so I produced a sort of hurried, informal anthology that I had printed at a local print shop. But that got me thinking that there was no collection of writings, historical and contemporary, about the park. And just about that same time, I was living in Indiana at the time, I found out from a colleague that Lance Newman, who is currently the Dean of Arts and Sciences at Westminster, was also working on a book, uh, an anthology of readings about the Grand Canyon, where he had been a river guide for about 20 years. So I wrote to Lance, and we agreed that a series of readers about the national parks would probably be a good idea that it would help people understand the, the history of the individual parks and also of the National Park Service generally. 
And uh, you, uh, you uh, individually are working on, or did uh, edit the one on Glacier. Yes, that's right. Uh, it turned out that the University of Utah Press had already published uh, a book called The Zion Canyon Reader, edited by Nathan Waite and Reed Nielsen. And in pretty short order, we were able to get uh, James Pickering, uh, who at one time was the president of the University of Houston, to assemble the Rocky Mountain National Park Reader. I did the Glacier Park Reader, and now we're anxiously awaiting the birth of Steve Trimble's Capital Reef Reader. All right. Well, that's a nice segue. So, Stephen Tribble, you've you've had a long association with Capitol Reef, our, our least least visited, least least well known in Utah. Least well known, anyhow. Actually, Canyonlands gets fewer visitors. Okay. Ever since the Mighty Five campaign, Capitol Reef went over a million people a year. So, it still feels empty most of the time. But there are more people now there than there were when I was a ranger there in 1975. That's for sure. So, when when I heard that Dave and Lance were doing this series. I uh, talked with them about a Capitol Reef book, and basically I wasn't going to let anyone else do that book. Capitol <laughs> Reef is my park. Uh, I worked there in the 70s. I've been photographing there ever since. And uh, it's really been just a joy to work on. Uh, I've been researching the writing about Capitol Reef ever since I worked on a small National Park Natural History Association booklet about the park back just a couple years after I was a ranger. So the literature is dear to me, and I was able to find all sorts of great stuff that I didn't know about. You know, there's a whole cohort out here of writers and photographers who started as employees of the Park Service or river guides working in parks. You know, Greer and Dave and I all have that, that foot back in the parks, back in our youth, and uh, we're still planted there. I want to turn to Greer Chester. Uh, you're, uh, you're working on the upcoming book on Bryce, I understand. That's right. I am. Although my park is Zion, just like Stephen was saying, I have my own park, and that's Zion. I started there as a ranger in 1981, but that book had already been written, darn it all. And so uh, I, uh, I happen to be one of the writers in that book. But uh, I have written a number of books on Bryce, and uh, so uh, because it doesn't have its own writer, I, I guess I've become that writer, okay. even though I've never worked there. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to doing this book. Well, well, Stephen and Greer have mentioned my park, and I want to follow up with that. I'll start with Greer Cheshire. Um, Zion is your park. What, uh, what what do you find so appealing about Zion? Well, I live right outside the gate uh, in. Rockville, Utah, and I, it was my second park as a ranger. I, my first park was Bandelier in New Mexico, and uh, I just have a long association with it, um, having lived here so long, and I just find it to be one of the, well, the most beautiful park in the system. I, it, although now, it's difficult to see it um, because it is so overrun. Everyone else evidently thinks it's the most beautiful park in the system, too. And they all come to see it and enjoy it. So it's uh, it's very heavily visited mm-hmm. in the summer. Uh, Stephen Trimble, Capitol Reef. It's your park. What, uh, what do you like so much about Capitol Reef? Well, it's, it's easy to say why I love it. I, I do have to say it's a little presumptuous for us to say this is my park. <laughs> you know, we all have our favorites. And uh, you know, there's a bit of a controversy right now about Abbey's Country, 
Uh, it's the 50th anniversary of Desert Solitaire by Edward Abbey. And uh, Amy Irvine has written a sort of response to Desert Solitaire called Desert Cabal, where she takes issue with the idea that it's Abbey's country because it's all of our country, really. Uh, but nonetheless, the epigraph for my book on Capitol Reef, the Capitol Reef Reader, does indeed come from Edward Abbey. And to answer your question why I love Capitol Reef, let me read you that epigraph. It's just a couple of paragraphs. All right. This is from Abbey's piece about Capitol Reef in a National Geographic book about uh, United States wilderness back in 1973. And he wrote, when I made my first trip to Capitol Reef, it was those spooky, unimaginable shapes of stone that caught and held my attention. Domes, pinnacles, turrets, spires, arches and bridges, pits, pockets, potholes, plunge pools, goblins and hobgoblins, cracks and crevices and canyons, buttes, cathedrals, caves, grottos, alcoves, humps, hills, holes and hollows, slick walls and sheer cliffs. There is, as far as I know, no other place on earth where time and weather have created so curious and so intriguing an assemblage of landforms. To get the feel of this country, to taste its atmosphere and sample its spirit, you must leave your car and go up into the hills of golden stone, up into that never-never land of petrified cities, secret water pockets crawling with fairy shrimp and mosquito larvae, and into those mysterious little canyons which lead nowhere, where no human has ever gone before, for all you know. You must follow those dim trails which take you out of civilization's web, beyond all that is safe and familiar, out of sight, out of mind, out of reach. That's why I love Capitol Reef. <laughs> That's beautiful. That's beautiful. I'll turn to David Stanley. Uh, tell me about Glacier, why you love it so much. Well, I think you always love a place where you had some of your earliest youthful adventures, and that was certainly the case with me. I started working in the park when I was 18. But Glacier is, is remarkable. In the first place, it's very remote. It's not on the way to anything, and so it's not quite as crowded as some of the more famous or more accessible national parks are. It also has a tremendous uh, reservoir of human history there, not only the numerous Native American groups that passed back and forth through the park, uh, going uh, from the forested areas to the west to the great open plains where they hunted bison on the east. But thanks to the Great Northern Railway, uh, the park is has a number of historic hotels and a lot of other historic buildings. And so you can go to the park and feel as if you're immersed in an experience that at least reminds us of what the uh, fairly wealthy tourists in of the 1920s and 30s experienced. Yeah, that uh, that's, must be a, a wonderful, wonderful uh, feeling. Uh, I want to... Uh, before we go to our first break, I want to uh, broach one of the you know, current contemporaneous uh, topics. I'll start with uh, Greer Cheshire, um, and that's overcrowding. Um, I want to, uh, Stephen Trimble mentioned the Mighty Five. Is that, in Rockville, is, is that seen as a good thing? I guess, you know, gateway towns depend on revenue, but uh, is, is there a case of too much? Oh, there's definitely a case of too much. I don't know what to do about that, and we talk about it a lot here. Um, the Mighty Five is kind of two bad words to us. <laughs> it's 
something we don't bring up much. But, uh, you know, the businesses are the ones who depend on that tourism and lots of it. And I don't uh, disparage that for them. But for those of us who live here, I right now I would love to be sitting outside doing this interview with you, but I can't because the sound of the cars would be way too loud. Even at this hour, uh, it would it would overwhelm my voice on the phone. So uh, that's a, a problem for us here. I live right on the road into Zion. And only in the last, oh, five or six, seven years has this been a real problem here to where it's uh, impacted our lives. For example, I don't go into the park at all during the summer. It's just waiting in line. Uh, perhaps you've seen the pictures of the lines of people waiting to go up Angel's Landing. Um, I, and I can't imagine that's a great experience for folks mm. either who, who come here to mm. enjoy it. Yeah, I've personally experienced the, that crowding. Of course, I was there have during you? peak season. I I wouldn't have expected that in uh, in mid April. Uh, but but yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I commented to my wife when we were there. It's uh, I can get more elbow room, uh, you know, at home in Logan. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but people, you know, people want to come. It's uh, I don't know. Does that decrease the experience for people in Zion? The, the crowding? Well, I don't know. Uh, it does for people, for the people who live here and who have experienced it in the past when it was not this way. But I don't know if it does for the people who come here to enjoy it. You know, if this is their only and first experience, then it might be a lovely time for them. You know, uh, if, if this is your only chance, when I go to New York City, it doesn't, it, it, it's all I get. So, uh, it, it's, it's still fun for me. So I think it must still be fun for them, but it's not what I would like them to have is how I see it. Yeah. Um, what about the businesses there? I would imagine, you know, if you're a business owner in Rockville or Springdale, you'd, you want the business, don't you? Oh, I would think so. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Stephen Trimble, you you say you've seen an increase in visitorship to uh, uh, to Capitol Reef. Yeah, absolutely. The the same kinds of increases that we're talking about, but not quite on the same scale. You know, there was a, an article in the the Tribune this morning about Moab being overrun and basically just continuing to advertise endlessly about how great it is to come to Moab. You know. Is growth really good endlessly? Do we want to just have endless, infinite growth? Uh, I really think we're going to have to grapple with that. And that's, that's really behind, it. that's at the root of this series of books. You know, Dave and Greer and I and these other folks who are editing the volumes are interpreters at heart. That's a park service word. And when you work as a park naturalist, you're often called an interpreter. And we we just believe right right down to our toenails that if we teach people a little bit more about the place, if we connect people to the spirit of these places that we love, they will treat them more gently and with a little more restraint. And I think that we hope that all of those visitors, those millions now of visitors, will read these books and have a new sense of where they are and the incredibly rich history in each of these parks. Um, One thing I want to make sure I point out I had a hard time finding any first-person native literature from Capitol Reef. 
you know, the the uh, history of these places certainly begins with Native people. And I found some writing about Native people and writing from archaeologists and general narratives that were based on interviews with the Paiute and Ute and Navajo people who lived in Capitol Reef. You know, the very best story is the story of the pectoral shields, the, those three uh, large rawhide shields, each of them three feet across, that were uh, dug up by Bishop Pectol back in the 30s and have had a long journey eventually taking them back to a Navajo medicine man. But um, Capitol Reef, like, like most of these parks, doesn't have a, a rich written literature from Native folks. And that was something that I, I really wished I had more of. But we need to always recognize that's where we start. Uh, so I'll stay with Stephen Trimble for this. For this. I just want to um, you know continue this topic of overcrowding. Uh, so interpret, and if you read the Capital Reef Reader, um, your hope is that people will, um, you know, have a better context, right? And 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 come with what more reverence for the place. Uh, but but if there's too much overcrowding, does reverence for the place does that include you know don't come or uh, or not come on, on on peak season? Well, we well we can't say don't come. You know, we can't keep secrets. Uh, no matter which trail we think of as our, our private place, word's going to get out. It's going to be in a guidebook. And what Superintendent Kate Cannon is doing over at Arch is trying to dictate, um, well, not dictate, to arrange for scheduled times of entry. You know, we're, we're just going to have to do that. Uh, everyone's still going to have an amazing experience, but we have to back off a little bit. And we can't say don't come, but we can begin to manage the parks for the numbers mm-hmm. of people that are there. Uh, David Stanley, is there is there an overcrowding problem in Glacier? There is. Uh, during the peak season, July and August, uh, there are a lot more people on the trails, a lot more people on the roads. Uh, I don't think Glacier suffers from overcrowding quite as, quite as much as uh, the parks that are more amenable to tour groups and huge tourist buses. Uh, there's a well-known circuit now that includes Las Vegas, Grand Canyon, and Zion. And I think that those tour groups are partly responsible for the overcrowding. I would like to say, though, that I think one of our problems is nomenclature. We have about six or seven different designations within the National Park Service. National parks are the best known, but there are also national monuments, which have been in the news for the last couple of years uh, because of President Trump's sh- attempt to shrink Bears Ears and and uh, Escalante, Grand Staircase Escalante. We have many other units, though, besides the national pon- monuments. There are national historic sites. There are national battlefields. There are uh, national preserves, all of them administered by the Park Service. And one of the problems is that a national park, the word park, suggests recreation, greenery, uh, happiness, joy, kids running around, that kind of thing. National monuments, on the other hand, if you say monument, what do you mean by that? Well, I think people think of first tombstones and cemeteries, and second, uh, a 555-foot obelisk in Washington, D.C. Monument is a confusing term for many people, especially uh, 
ordinary American citizens and ordinary uh, people from foreign lands. I'd like to see our concept of a national park broadly expanded because there are dozens and dozens of fabulous places to visit, to recreate, to hike, to camp, to picnic, uh, to do all of the things that people do in national parks. If we uh, took a lot of our national monuments and other uh, sites and made them, gave them the name park, I think that that would help to spread out visitation quite a bit. Yeah, I think it's. Uh, I think you're right. Uh, I was growing up in Vernal. I was. I was always confused of, uh, because I often would go to Dinosaur National Monument, and as a, as a kid, I was I was thinking, well, we're going to go to a, an obelisk or something. It's really it's 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 a park, right? Had a, had yeah, some great times is. out there. And uh, different parks have different attractions. Uh, we tend to think of them as uh, strictly in terms of scenery, but obviously, dinosaur. And the newly designated national monument in the center center of Utah are famous for their um, their Jurassic era skeletons, yeah. and uh, that doesn't mean that you can't have a terrific time. Dinosaur National Monument has the Green River running through it, and uh, spectacular rock formations. Some of the best trout fishing in the country is just downstream. There's lots to do around uh, dinosaur besides look at bones. Yeah, and that's and I, I've done a lot of that. It's, it's beautiful, but uh, yeah, it is confusing the the name. I, I agree with you. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, I want to uh, to, to talk about more of these uh, uh, topics, including crumbling infrastructure. We we like to think of uh, parks as uh, you know the national parks are natural, right? But there's a lot of infrastructure, and and there's a great need there, and uh, we'll talk about that. Um, and I want to throw this out to our listeners, and I'll ask our guests as well. What's your favorite place? Could be in the National Park System, uh, might not be. On Earth Day, what's your favorite, uh, favorite, favorite place? I'd love to hear from you. 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. Or you can email us to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. We have with us uh, Greer Chester, David Stanley, and uh, Stephen Trimble, and they are each uh, editors uh, of uh, books in the ongoing National Park Reader Series published by University of Utah Press. More following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Anderson Seed and Garden, offering spring decor, garden supplies, and landscaping ideas. Located at 69 West Center Street in Logan. Information at andersonseedandgarden.com and on Facebook. Hi, I'm Steve Williams, host of Jazz Time here on Utah Public Radio. I hope you'll join me Sunday evenings for a journey through the world of jazz music, from ragtime to bop, from Havana to Logan, Utah. Tune in for a bit of history, commentary, the occasional interview, and of course, all that jazz. Jazz time, Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. StoryCorps has been curating conversations between loved ones for years. Now they're attempting to put strangers together, people on opposite sides of the political divide, to have a conversation. The project is called One Small Step. UPR is one of six stations nationwide selected to participate. We'll be traveling Utah collecting these conversations with the hope that we'll all realize we have much more in common than we think we do. If you're interested, we'd love to have you participate. Just go to upr.org and click on the One Small Step link. That's upr.org. Click on One Small Step. 
Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. We are celebrating Earth Day. Um, and as usual, we have with us Stephen Trimble, author of Bargaining for Eden, The Fight for the Last Open Spaces in America, and many other books. Um, we also have with us this time around retired Westminster professor David Stanley and former National Park Service naturalist and planner Greer Cheshire. All three are editors of books in the ongoing National Park Readers Series published by University of Utah Press. We're talking about the National Park uh, System and uh, issues and uh, celebrating uh, Earth Day. Um, Stephen Trimble, I was when we were talking, uh, setting up this episode, I I was estimating we'd we you and I have done this for four or five years. I think it's, I was looking it up. It's more like seven or eight. So it's been a wonderful thing. That's great. Well, there's there's always stuff to talk about when it comes to Earth Day <laughs> and right. public lands. You know, yeah. you know, I was thinking when uh, when Dave was talking about national parks versus national monuments, one section of of my book, the Capital Reef Reader, that I think is fascinating is the evolution of Capitol Reef as a preserve. You know, it started out when local folks in Wayne County started requesting a Wayne Wonderland National Park back in the 1920s and 30s. And then by 1937, we had a small Capitol Reef National Monument that just sat there without much infrastructure for decades. And then finally in the 60s, when the nation as a whole began to come around to thinking a little bit more about the loss of open space and the need to protect wild places. In his very last day in office, uh, President Johnson, actually while he was dressing for Richard Nixon's inauguration, <laughs> si- signed a proclamation expanding Capitol Reef National Monument to about the size that it is now, but it was still a national monument. It wasn't until 1972 that we made it a national park. And that that, that tension between original energy for the monument coming from locals to the presidential proclamation that expanded it greatly is still there in Wayne County. As, as we all know, there's that ongoing tension between love for the parks and love for what they do for economies and still a, a sort of lingering resentment about the federal government designating these places. And the irony of a lot of the readings in my book is that they came from the, the hearts and souls of people that lived in Capitol Reef at the little village of Fruta or on Pleasant Creek at, F, F, at what was originally F. Hanks Ranch. And none of those people live there now. It's a, it's a national park without such villages. So that, that creates some good stories for the park. And that, that has resonance to today. That's, that I didn't know that about Capitol Reef. Of course, you have the ongoing controversy over Bears Ears, the attention there. That's right. It's an ongoing controversy that, that I think will be with us for, for a few more generations in Utah uh, it's, as we continue to evolve and react to increasing numbers of people and climate change and trying to find our refuges out there on the public lands. It's, it's complicated, but it's great for literature. Yeah. Uh, I want to get into the literature. Uh, I want to turn to Greer Cheshire next. Uh, that's a good segue. You have a, a new book coming out, Next Gen National Park, understand, uh, talking about Grand Staircase, Bears Ears, Future of Our Public Lands. That's the uh, subtitle for Tory House Press. I wonder what you would say about that tension, that ongoing tension. I imagine this will go forward. Oh, it's a big question, especially in Utah. Um, the court case over Grand Staircase and Bears Ears will probably be settled by the end of the year. We'll know in what direction those cases will go, whether we will have those parks back or not. 
But then the question becomes, even if they return or if they don't, the question becomes, what what do we do with those lands, even if we get them back? How will they be managed, and how do we go forth into the future? I was at a conference recently, um, I think Stephen was there too, and one of the participants said, uh, you know, these public lands in Utah are now being managed by Facebook and Instagram. Uh, and Facebook and I Instagram. What? That was the mm. most interesting comment I'd heard in a long time. Uh, expand on uh, that. What did, what did they mean by that? Well, that no matter what we do as managers, and I was a manager at Grand Canyon for quite a long time, but no, no matter what we do as managers, especially on BLM and Forest Service lands, which aren't gated like parks are, uh, information is out there on, on the web. If you want to find something on a BLM land, you can find it. There's nothing that's uh, protected by... Uh, not being out there, by not being in a guidebook. The directions are there exactly how to find it. And so, you know, you can get anywhere you want to get now. And if you type in Grand Staircase or Bears Ears, you can find anything out there. You don't have to wait for a guidebook to be published. And so, uh, you know, the climbers are out there the hikers are out there, and we need to think about how we're going to manage those lands, even if they aren't monuments. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> but can you get ahead of the? Can you get out ahead of Facebook and Instagram? Oh no, we're way behind already. Mm-hmm. Way behind. So yeah. then, then how do you manage these lands without? That's get, a, that's yeah. Yeah, that's the question. Okay, that's exactly. good. Anyway, yeah. are there guests? Stephen Trimble, David Stanley, you have an answer to that question. Well, I was uh, thinking, we're now seeing a phenomenon that I call selfie tourism. And what's happening is that people are posting photographs of spectacular sites, both uh, inside national parks and in national monuments and in other locations. And generally, these photographs have GPS coordinates attached to them. And the result is, is that people see a spectacular scene and decide that they too want to have their picture taken there. And so uh, following the GPS coordinates, they go to the same place. They take exactly the same photograph, but with a different face in in the foreground. And uh, this has led to uh, massive traffic jams on the way to particular lookouts, uh, overlooks, and other uh, visually arresting points. I'm not sure what to do about that. Uh, as Greer said, uh, we're not going to change the technology, but I do think that spreading out the appeal of many of these places is is one possibility that would help. Yeah, and I'm yeah. sure Dave, Dave's well aware of Iceberg Lake at Glacier being one of those places. Horseshoe Bend on the Colorado, just below Glen Canyon Dam, used to be a relatively obscure overlook, and now millions of people, literally millions of people, go there to get that picture that they want to post on Instagram, and the Park Service is having to upgrade the infrastructure and put in restrooms and harden parking lots and guardrails, and, you know, it, it, it changes the experience, but we all know that you can still walk 100 yards off a trail 
or pick an obscure turnout along a Park Service road that doesn't say scenic, oh, scenic viewpoint ahead and just walk off into the boonies and you'll be by yourself. Mm. I want to uh, ask you talk about context and you hope that that's what Capital Reef Reader does that. I wonder about a through line from some of the historical records that uh, you know that you've included in your reader to the problems that we're experiencing today that we just been talking about right there. Is 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 there a through line? Uh, and I don't know, is it good or bad? Well, I think the through line that I find so interesting. I have I have almost fifty different writers in the book, and you know it starts with the explorers like Clarence Dutton and and Jack Hillers, the photographer for the Powell expedition. And uh, their journeys down from Boulder Mountain, I, I, I define Capitol Reef Country a little bit broadly from the rim of Boulder Mountain where you look out over the water pocket fold all the way over to the Henry Mountains. And as you go through history, as you go through time with people exploring that country, you encounter all those native people and then the pioneers and then people begin to use the park in all kinds of different ways. Artists and photographers come for inspiration. The uh, wilderness therapy programs used that country be- between Capitol Reef and the Henrys intensely during the 1990s and early 2000s. And Gary Ferguson wrote one of the, my, my favorite pieces in the book, uh, a book called The Shouting at the Sky, where he spent time with wilderness therapy kids. And he describes that as the most moving experience of his life as a writer or, or even as a human being. Uh, there's a piece about taking field students out there. There, there are a few short pieces by English language learners that have been going to the uh, UVU, the Utah Valley University field station that's now at that same site in Pleasant Creek where the ranchers lived for generations, responding to the place when they come from other countries like Saudi Arabia or Mali, places that have no landscape, anything like that. And and then there are the, the canyoneers and the explorers who are coming to the place to really strike out and find the wildest country they can. So in some ways, the, the through line is from the early earliest explorers who were exploring country that wasn't on a map to the explorers now who are looking for the places on the map that no one has put in the guidebook yet. Mm. Let's take another break. When we come back, I want to hear a little more about the literature. And uh, we'll alert you to start with David Stanley on this. Uh, get some more from Glacier and from Capitol Reef and, uh, and from Bryce or that Guru Cheshire is working on or other parks if you want to talk about those, uh, Guru Cheshire, the, the literature um, about these uh, parks. It's featured in the National Park Reader Series. That's published by University of Utah Press. And all three of my guests on the program today are editors of books in that ongoing uh, series. And those guests are Stephen Trimble, David Stanley, and Greer Cheshire. We'll have more following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Humanities, improving communities through ideas and action. Online at utahhumanities.org. What you see all across the country is hope work. I have hope because I know this just can't be the best version of the world that we can have. What is the best version of the world we live in? This week, we continue with our three-part series on hope, asking, how do we make it? Because let's be honest, if we don't have hope, there's no future. Join us next time on To the Best of Our Knowledge. Sunday morning at 9 o'clock here on Utah Public Radio. This is Craig Jessup, Dean of the King College of the Arts at Utah State University. 
UPR is everywhere you are with classical music programming, news and information statewide through their 36 signals, worldwide on the web at upr.org and through the new online app. UPR is only a push of the button away. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. Every uh, year for Earth Day, we talk with uh, writer and photographer Stephen Trimble. We have him on the program today, uh, joining us from KCBW Studios in Salt Lake City. Uh, this time, we're also talking with retired Westminster professor David Stanley, and uh, he's also joining us from KCBW. And on the phone, former National Park Service naturalist and planner Greer Chesser. All three are editors in bo- of books in the ongoing National Park Reader Series published by University of Utah Press. And I promised we'd get to uh, some of the literature. Uh, Stephen has shared some of that from Capitol Reef National Park. David Stanley, you've uh, edited the book on Glacier National Park. Uh, what uh, what are some of the most uh, interesting, maybe colorful? Uh, tell us about some of the literature. Well, I will. Uh, I'll read you a little passage here in a second. Uh, you know, every national park has uh, its own history, and in particular uh, with Glacier Park, the main impetus to create the park as a park came from the Great Northern Railway. Uh, Louis B. B. Hill, who had succeeded his father, James J. Hill, better known as the Empire Builder, uh, was running the railroad uh, when he was uh, not even 40 years old. And he decided that one way to increase passenger traffic was to make Glacier Park a destination He had Yellowstone as an example in front of him, but the Northern Pacific had already uh, laid tracks right to the edge of of Yellowstone, and he wanted to do the same for Glacier, and he put a lot of money into building hotels and tent camps and other facilities to attract people, particularly to the east side of the park. Well, pretty soon after the uh, railroad went through, and it wasn't completed until 1893, a woman named Carrie Adele Strayhorn uh, came to the park. Her husband uh, was actually an employee of the Union Pacific Railroad, and he was traveling around the West looking for economic opportunities for the railroad. But Carrie uh, accompanied him and in 1911 published a book called 15,000 Miles by Stage, a woman's unique experience during 30 years of pathfinding and pioneering from the Missouri to the Pacific and from Alaska to Mexico. That's quite a title. Mm -hmm. Well, here's an example of uh, some of her writing. She had a great wit, and she describes uh, being dropped off at West Glacier, uh, what is now called West Glacier, at a time when uh, they were assured that they would find uh, ample tourist facilities. She wrote, We were dropped off in time to see our baggage rolling down a steep embankment, and before we could get our breath, the train was off like a flash while every hope on earth seemed to fade as the rear car vanished in the distance. After all the assurances given us in St. Paul, Minnesota, there was not even a platform, and we slid down the grade with this little dignity as our baggage and with no chance to get aboard again before the train was off. Making inquiries for the stage office, etc., we were given the ha-ha. One man stared and grinned until my husband said he was demented. That stirred the grinning man's mettle somewhat, and he said, 
No stranger, I hain't no fool, nor there hain't no stage to Lake McDonald, and there hain't no road nother. <laughs> Further urging developed the fact that it was half a mile to the river, with no bridge over the river, and a poor trail full of fallen trees for two and a half miles t'other side of the river to the lake. Two men were finally found to take us across the Flathead River and show us the beginning of the trail. The craft was only a scooped-out log, and five passengers greatly overloaded the dangerous pirogue. We were repeatedly cautioned not to make any movements to influence the canoe, and I fairly held my breath for fear we would not balance. But with all care possible, there was a critical time when it seemed as if we would be rolled over into the swift, turbulent whirlpools which resented our intrusion. Several attempts were made before a landing was secured and the dim trail pointed out. We watched our boatmen recross the river and wished we too were safely back on the other side, then resolutely turned our faces into the black heart of the dense forest. <laughs> well, that's an example of what it was like to be a very early visitor uh, to the area uh, approximately 17 years before the park was even established. Yeah, that's wonderful. Tell us again the the author of that. Carrie Adele Strayhorn, 15,000 Miles by Stage, first published in uh, 1911. Mm, yeah, that's wonderful. That's in the Glacier Park Reader, edited by David Stanley. Let me turn to Greer Cheshire again. Uh, what what literature stands out to you? For, you're, you're working on uh, uh, Bryce, I know, but uh, or, or maybe Zion. Literature that stands out to uh, you. No, I'm working on Bryce. Uh-huh. And it's it's a little harder to find uh, uh, literature on Bryce. Uh, so uh, the only thing I've found so far has been uh, a journal written by Thomas Wolfe, who came through this area uh, in 1938, just before he died. He was uh, on a lark, you might say, and was keeping notes for a novel he was thinking of writing, and some of it is quite lyrical, uh, but uh, otherwise I've found um, new science and things like that that have been uh, written, but uh, it's it's a little hard to find things written on Bryce. So if anyone's out there and has some lovely things they've found over the years written on Bryce or have written things themselves, I'd love to Love to know about it. All right, we'll put the word out. Uh, Gert Cheshire's yeah. editing the book on Bryce, and she needs some uh, some entries, um, yeah. or you know, maybe old journals or something. Uh, yeah, that why would do, be fabulous. Why do you think uh, there's a relative dearth of uh, things on Bryce? Well, it was extremely isolated. Uh, as if anyone's been through this area, there's a little tiny bridge in Rockville that was constructed in the 20s that was one of the first roads uh, that has just been restored, actually, but uh, was one of the first roads that connected Zion, Bryce, and North Rim of the Grand Canyon. Uh, and until then, there was not an easy way to get through this area by car. And uh, so you had to take the train from uh, Lund, Utah, to Cedar Break, or to Cedar City, and then uh, a traveling car, a touring car, and uh, it took four days to do the loop from Cedar City to Zion to North Rim to Cedar uh, to uh, Bryce and back to Cedar City. So it was an arduous journey in the 20s and 30s, 40s, 
to go through this area. And so I don't think that uh, many people <laughs> were up to that. Mm. So there's not a lot of early writing other than the explorers and uh, that I can find anyway. So if people have journals and uh, or know of writings from that era, I'd love to see them. All right. Contact uh, Greer Cheshire. Uh, you contributed yeah. a piece to the Zion Reader, I understand. I did. Uh, and I was uh, teasing uh, Lyman Hafen, uh, another writer, that uh, of all the writings in that, in that reader, uh, we are the only people still alive, he and I, so it doesn't bode well for us. <laughs> You're um, heading the wrong direction. Okay. Yeah, that's right. I suppose that's true of, of, of all everyone, of us. Of but, all of us, uh, yes. <laughs> But, uh, uh, yeah, if you'd like, I can read a little piece yes, from that. Yes, love it, yes. Um, uh, this was from a book I wrote on Zion with the photographer Michael Flyler called Zion Canyon, A Storied Land, uh, which is a translation, a storied land of the Paiute name for Zion Canyon. Um, so I'll just read a little bit here. Uh To tell you the story of Zion, to have you feel it, see it, I want a different way of talking, a new alphabet. I want a language full of exacting definition, a word for the precise pink of manzanita flowers in earliest spring, for the experimental green of cottonwoods leafing along the Virgin River, itself the dusty watercolor of spring runoff. I want a word to convey the first touch of sun hot on winter white flesh so you can feel it, smell it, scratch and sniff words, hot words and cold, words jagged as a new broken water rockfall, words that lie smooth as a water-worn pebble in your mind. I want ink that when held up to the light glows like melon cut open in the sun, like light through a cactus petal, ink that when red splashes off the page, river water around boulders. I want parchment, the color of Indian rice grass in June. I want a language of thunderstorm and baked sand. I can only acquaint you with the conversation I've been having with this place for the last 20 years or so. I can only use the language I have, inadequate though it may be. I carry a slight accent. Those from here can tell I'm not, but they can also tell that after all these years, I am now of here. Zion converses with Mockingbird and desert tortoise, mountain lion, and morning cloak. It twirls cliff rose plumes on its windy fingers while waiting to speak with you. Get yourself a cup of coffee. Let's talk. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. That's You can find that in the Zion Park uh, reader. That's a uh, great That's right. oh, We just have about oh, uh, five or six minutes left. I wonder, uh, Stephen Trimble, is there something else you'd like to share from the Capitol Park reader? Uh, Capital yeah, Reef. Ca- the Capital Reef Reader, which I, I need to mention will be out next month. Next month, okay. Yeah, so you can even order it now, and it will arrive once it's back from the printer. All right. Um, 
Well, I, I wanted to just run through a little bit more of what is in the book. Okay. Uh, there are a couple of places where I just think it's so great that I was able to find people talking about the same place through time. So I mentioned F. Hanks came to the park. He was the first person to homestead there after all those years of it being a native place. Uh, and he came in the 1880s to Pleasant Creek, which is now down at the end of the scenic drive. And I've got a piece written about the Hanks family living there. And then through interviews, both that I found in archives and that I did myself back in the 1990s, I have stories from Billy Bullard, who lived there with her husband in the 1930s, and Lert Nee, who owned the Pleasant Creek Ranch, which he called Sleeping Rainbow Ranch, from 1939 until he died in 1995. And a piece from Chip Ward, a writer a lot of us here in Utah know, who you may not know managed the Sleeping Rainbow Ranch back in the 70s with his wife, Linda. And then those pieces from the Utah Valley University students I mentioned earlier. You know, Capitol Reef had the advantage of being on a uh, through route through, through Utah. That, that Highway 24 route that went right through Capitol Gorge was the only way across South Central Utah for decades until the uh, Department of Transportation paved the, the highway down through the Fremont Gorge. And so there, there were more people coming there, and I think that's one of the reasons that gave me such a rich literature. Uh, two little tiny things I wanted to read. I mentioned the story of the pectoral shields. You know, I just think this is the most startling thing in the book. Those big leather shields that we couldn't figure out archaeologically were in the Park Service Visitor Center at Capitol Reef for years. They were displayed on Temple Square as evidence of the Book of Mormon for years. And finally, someone got around to asking Native people what they were, where they came from. And when that question finally arrived at the, uh, at the chair of John Holliday, who was an older Navajo medicine man who lived to be over 100, he said, well, of course I know what they were. They were made by particular people, and they were powerful safeguards to pe keep Navajo people safe. And then he went on to say, exactly who made them centuries ago. Many goats with white hair created the shields, making them in the Kaibab Mountains in a thick pine forest with a circular clearing. Custody of the shields went to man who keeps his mouth open, and then yellow forehead, tall skinny man, man who wants to sit down, side person, man who plays with the wooden cards, man with metal teeth, ropey, and finally to little bitter water man. The shields had different names, Earth Protective Shield, Heaven's Protective Shield, Mountain Protective Shield, and Water's Protective Shield. They were decorated with the likeness of the invisible protective powers held by the natural entity named. For example, the Earth, a living being, has its own shield of protection. By copying its elements, the Navajo can likewise draw upon its protective powers. And I'm reading from Bob McPherson's retelling of this story. And the Park Service listened to this and learned that uh, during the time of the Long Walk, when the Navajos were captured and sent away to a desolate place in eastern New Mexico, Little Bitter Water Man had control of the shields and wanted to prevent their capture. And he hid them in Capitol Reef, left the area, and then died without telling anyone where they were. And all those years later, uh, Bishop Ephraim Pechtel dug them up and eventually, they they were returned to the Navajo, where they live today. Wow. Yeah, fascinating. It, it's just an amazing story. So the book is filled with stories like that, with, with the great 
nationalist writers like Abby and Charles Bowden and Ellen Malloy and Ann Zwinger and Craig Childs, along with folks that really none of us have ever heard of who, who have self-published stories about their own adventures in the park. And... Um, we just uh, let's see. We're just just about out of time uh, here. We just have at the end of the program. We'll have to have to end it there. You have to read this uh, the rest of it in uh, Capital Reef uh, Reader. Uh, we're also talking to the editor of the Glacier National Park Reader, and that's uh, David Stanley, and the upcoming uh, Bryce um, National Park Reader. And uh, Ger Cheshire is looking for entries for for that book. Uh, so, uh, former National Park Service naturalist and planner Ger Cheshire has been with us. Thank you so much. Thank you. I enjoyed it. And uh, David Stanley, a retired Westminster professor, has been with us. Thank you. Yes, thanks. I'd like to mention that uh, in addition to Steve and Greer's books, we have in the works books on Grand Teton, Arches National Park, Canyonlands, and Joshua Tree National Monument in California. It's now a national park. All right. And we're working on some others. So this is a continuing series. Okay. We'll look for those. These are from published by University of Utah Press. And uh, Stephen Trimble, uh, who uh, worked on the, uh, edited the uh, Capitol Reef uh, Reader. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And, and I'll uh, talk to you next year, if not before. Uh, okay. Okay. Look forward to it. Happy Earth Day. Uh, happy Earth Day, everybody. And our, our thanks Earth to Day. the good folks at KCPW as well. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. UPR is made possible today with a program day sponsorship from the Barry Laughlin family of Providence in honor of Earth Day. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org.